Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, the host of this podcast, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Rulin McKay. Now, I've talked about Rulin a couple of times on this podcast, not by name, but through example, because he's been a person that I've looked up to in my own leadership journey. So I'm super excited to chat with him today. So welcome, Rulin. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, so glad to have you. Well, Rulin is a senior consultant with PeopleCore, a firm based in Pennsylvania. He spent the bulk of his career with Shell Oil Company as a human resource manager. He has a master's in human resource management and a bachelor's degree in human resource development. Rulin has trained and coached thousands of leaders over the course of his career, from frontline supervisors to senior executives. He also served as a member of leadership teams and for two years as the chairman of the Contra Costa County Workforce Development Board in California. He and his wife, Martha, are the parents of five children and 11 grandchildren. And one example that I've learned from Ruin over the years is about listening. And that was one of the first things I referenced about Ruin on the podcast, not by name, but I talked about how he, in a discussion with a bunch of youth from a church group, gave an example of leadership and how he'd received all this specific training from Shell, I believe at the time, of how to become a better listener. And he talked about the importance of it. And that lesson has just stuck with me for so long, not all the words, but just how important it is to focus on listening. And I find it interesting and very wonderful that one of the 10 characteristics of servant leadership is listening. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about the importance of listening and how you go about becoming a better listener and training others to do so. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny because, you know, here's Shell, probably one of the three or four biggest companies in the world in terms of revenue. And I went for an entire week on just listening skills, not communication skills, just listening. And they had us, you know, just learn how to nod and say, "Uh uh-huh. You know, they were teaching us active listening. We call that active listening. Move from just I hear sounds to active listening to asking questions, you know, to reflect that you're listening, you're actually able to hear somebody. And it was just amazing to me to see the investment that Shell was making. But they'd done the math, clearly, and seen that over the years, lack of, you know, good listening skills was costing the company opportunities and and uh, relationships and and in the end money and revenue but you know the bigger example Keith that sticks in my mind when I think about listening is my wife's listening skills so we're on our very first date and we're driving home and she asked me a question and I mean I'm a rambler right I can talk forever and I mean I went on for probably five minutes answering her question and when I got done you know I had the uh-huh mm-hmm, oh wow that's interesting you know she went back and asked me a follow-up question about something that I'd said at like minute 1.3 right <laughs> and I was just like what she was listening and that curious and I kid you not in that moment it dawned on me I could marry this girl now I didn't know, you know, that she was a world champion ballroom dancer. I didn't know she spoke German. I didn't know she was a whiz in math and would wipe out all the engineers at BYU, an elite engineering school. You know, I didn't know all these things she'd accomplished. But at that moment, I was like, wow, man, I could marry this girl. That's the power of listening. That's the power of listening. It changes people's hearts and minds and relationships like almost nothing else can. That's a wonderful thought. And all of us really want to be heard. We want to be seen. And when we feel that, when we feel that we're being heard and we're being seen, it provides a deeper connection. And just what a powerful example of how powerful that principle truly is. Another thing, you're really good at change management. And I think about 
all the things that are going on in the world right now, you think about the pandemic, this extended crisis that we're all experiencing, the, the increase in trauma that from an extended crisis and having to live with that. You think about the the wider dialogue on social justice and all of the expressions of frustration and angst and fear that we're seeing. And, and then you think about the rise in natural disasters. And even this morning, we wake up to news of Ukraine in turmoil. And so you think about all of these things and you look at people and so often people just don't feel that they're being seen or heard. And a lot of these instances that leads to a greater degree of trauma so how do you take these principles of change management and really empower people or help them grow to become better versions of themselves? Yeah, it's a great challenge. I mean, just first a couple of clarification things. I mean, change management is management. And I think a lot of consultants would like it to be what we call a dark art. Well, I don't want you to understand how this happens. You know, you need me. <laughs> it's kind of like, no, we all need to be good change managers, parents, you know, leaders in organizations, project managers, we, we all need the principles of change management. And to, again, put a point on what it actually is, we're talking about an art here. Maybe there's some science to it. There's definitely some science to it. But it is an art of fostering ownership for something new to help somebody else not just do it, right, do the new thing we're implementing, but own it, love it, embrace it, make it more effective than you even envisioned, right? And so even embedded in that is this idea of, you can't force it on people. You have to be their servant as they learn to to embrace it. So that's sort of a couple of overall comments. But then the other thing I always laugh at, you know, because I've done a lot of internal and now a lot of external consulting. And I just laugh. I mean, literally, my response is to laugh when a, a senior executive asks me to come in and do some change management. And the first thing they do is say, so I've got this guy you can work with, you know, sort of let me know when you're done. I'm just like, you don't understand what you've asked me to do. Change management. The hardest part about change management is not getting people to do what you want them to do. The hardest part is getting leaders to buy in. So you think of change management as leadership, then the, the people piece, and then the program piece. So maybe let's just talk about leader, the leadership piece for a minute. You know what the number one thing leaders need to do in order to have effective change management it's actually not something they do. It's something that they feel. They have to feel, and get this, dissatisfied. So wait, 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 what do you mean dissatisfied? They have to feel dissatisfied with the current state. If leaders don't feel dissatisfied with where things are today, they're never going to have the energy to see all the effort through to the new state that they've envisioned. They'll just be like, ah, you know what, actually is too hard. Let's just kind of keep doing what we're doing, right? And, and so that's, Sort of that first thing that leaders need to be able to feel and then be able to articulate it, own it, share it in the same way. And then we get to the people piece. It's not near as complicated because the people, they see the sort of the visuals that a, a leader brings back into the room or even the wording. This is what senior executives want us to do. Think how destructive that sentence is. This is what senior executives want us to do. Or this is what they're making us do. I mean, you're not going to convince anybody to adopt that, right? So it's a real challenge to just come back in as a leader and have owned what it is that you want people to do. And then if my boss is excited about it, so am I, right? That's why, well, let's go out there and make those people do this. Well, bring yourself to it, right? Bring the change that you've already envisioned and they're excited about. And those people will change in a hurry. 
That's uh, some great thoughts. I never thought about the need to be dissatisfied. And that's an interesting concept. Like you mentioned, I think a couple of things come to my mind with that is first, I think going back to the first principle of listening, if you're really working with the people on your team and truly listening to them, I think you might find instances where you can see that there's everything is not working as good as you think it is as a leader. And that can help lead to understanding why you should be a little bit more dissatisfied with the current state of, of operations or, or your organization. And so that I think there's a natural tie in there, but also it can be kind of exhausting to always try to push yourself to get better and also not feeling accomplished. So looking for reasons to be dissatisfied can be kind of it can be kind of defeating to some people. I naturally have this propensity to always want to do better, to be a better version of myself. And what I've had to remind myself over time is that a lot of people, they don't like change. They prefer a routine, a rhythm. And if something's knocking them out of that, it actually kind of hurts their psyche more than helps it. So how do you take all these concepts and really teach these leaders how to be okay with change, but also okay with being dissatisfied that helps propel them to becoming better leaders and better versions of themselves. Right. Well, you you hit on an important thing, and that is that you might not need to change. You may need to just manage the current state better, right? And one of the ways that you do that is to recognize people for the behavior you wish them to perpetuate. And I like a simple model that says it's the four S's, right? Keep your recognition simple, specific, sincere, and spontaneous. You know, if you promise this, you know, gas card out there, if everybody meets their goals, and then they don't accomplish the goals, really what you've done is punished them, right? You've mismanaged the current. And then, of course, is sincere. Obviously, things have to be sincere. It has to be specific. If you say to your people, hey, good job, good job, good job, they don't don't know what you're talking about. You think they do, and they think they do, but they don't. So you need to say, Good job for getting the report in a day early. It enabled us to make some key changes and submit it with this other information. That made a big difference for our company. What are they going to do in the future? They're not going to just do a good job. They're going to get the reports in a day early because you were specific. See, And so that's how you manage the current state. But if you're managing change, you not only want to listen to your people and see that things aren't going well, but you got to look at data. You know, you got to look at your competition. You've got to be dissatisfied with something concrete, right? Or something that can be articulated in a, in a concrete enough way, even if there's not solid data, to say, here's where we are today. This is A, and this is where we need to be. And it's always a journey. Change management's a journey. And you have to own that ugly A. Let's let everybody see just how bad this really is. Unfortunately, you got to do that. You got to make everybody dissatisfied. And then you got to articulate that vision. Here's where we could be. Here's how our clients could think about us. Here's the money we could be making. Here's how fun it could be to work here, right? Oh, dang. Yeah. How do we get from A to B? That's C. That's the program of change management. A, B, C is the, you know, how to get from A to B. I love that thought. I was thinking as you were talking about one of the things we don't do very well in the Coast Guard is this this recognition process. It's interesting to us. We have these really complex award boards that that take forever to get these awards approved. And, you know, it can be six months after the event at best before you're getting a true award done. And and the verbiage has changed so much to make it more impactful that sometimes when you're looking at these awards, you're like, 
what does that even mean? <laughs> and Did so you, yeah, you're like, it doesn't, it feels kind of shallow sometimes yeah. when you get these things and you're, and you feel almost embarrassed to stand in front of your peers because you're like, ah, I don't know if I really, that, that's a good summary. And the other thing I was thinking about kind of that process is that most often it doesn't feel sincere because we have to provide our own input. Yes, I did this amazing. And even our own annual evaluations, a lot of times in the officer world, in the military, we write our own evaluations as a way that they claim is training us to be better writers of other people. But then we just perpetuate the cycle of making everybody write their own. So what are we really learning there? And it just feels, you feel that difference. And then the, the flip side of that is that every commanding officer in the military, for the most part, and some other people, and a lot of our senior enlisted people have what I talked to you about as we were preparing is these challenge coins. Yeah. And they're given out on the spot. They're you know given with a handshake. There's a simple little coin, but they feel powerful because I think they meet what you're talking yep. about. They're simple. They they're sincere. And, you know, and they're spontaneous, spontaneous. Right? Yeah. Yep. And and I tell people all the time at this point in my career, please don't write me an award. I know the amount of hours you're wasting on people, you know, writing that up and reviewing it. I would much prefer to be thanked with a coin or just a, a great pat on the back than a simple, uh, you know, this complex award system because it just doesn't feel as good. Yeah, it's so true. And 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 just even, you know, baking a cake because you made it and you went in and you said, guys, I am so, you know, it, it, let's say you're rewarding a team and not just an individual. Guys, I am so grateful for what you guys were able to accomplish last night. Look, I made my special, you know, chocolate chip pumpkin bread. Um, I just want you to know I really appreciate it. I mean, that goes in deep. And that, that didn't take, you know, killing 14 trees and 13 review boards, you know, to get it done. And, I, you know, that's just a model I've come up with as I've seen hundreds of different ways to reward people over the years. And you know what else? It, it kind of gets back to the listening thing. It suggests you know how they feel. And that they are sensitive to the effort that they're putting out. And it's a way to reflect, I'm with you. But when you put all that bureaucracy on it, boy, it just distances that sense of intimacy that comes with a relationship that's good listening and good good communication. Yeah, some wonderful thoughts. I think as we look at these things, it can be easy to get caught up in the flow of our goals, our organizational outputs and inputs. And what do you do to take a step back to find the time to make sure you're recognizing people in a way that helps them see just their meaning to the team and the organization? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think taking a step back probably is part of a, a cycle, if you will. You know, we plan, do, you know, review. I think, you know, the military taught us, you know, some of those kinds of things. And so part of that review ought to be what is the impact on our people, not just our product or our service, right? And how are our people doing? And I think there's little things like bringing the people in to give a presentation and, you know, to the higher ups instead of me taking my team's presentation in or something like that. Sometimes that exposure is all it's needed to just say, we see what you're doing. We appreciate what you're doing. Again, it's very simple. It's not hard to bring someone into a meeting, right? It's, it can be very sincere for the people around the room. It's somewhat spontaneous, right? And so I, I don't know that there's a, a silver bullet for that, Keith. I think it's a really good point. How do, how do you make sure you take that step back other than to build it into the way you approach your work in terms of that work cycle, plan, do, review kind of stuff? Yeah, I like that. Be more intentional about it, making yep. it a, yep. an act that you're thinking about as opposed to just fitting it into 
the schedule because you realize, oh, it's it's time to recognize people. I think a regular process, the same way you do your planning process, you know, right. making that a step in the planning process, I think is a good way to do that. You know, I would, as you were talking about bringing people in to represent their product or their presentation instead of giving it for them, I, I hadn't really thought about that from a way of recognizing someone, but it is a powerful tool to recognize. It shows them that you trust them, you empower them, and you're also not afraid to allow them to grow and succeed. I think too often we get this kind of closed mentality in an organization or on a team where we're, we, it almost feels like the leaders are too afraid to let people surpass them sometimes. And when you bring someone in to allow them to shine in front of leadership, it really shows them that you're not afraid of their own growth. And it sends this deeper message that you're not only are you not afraid, but you're open and supportive of their growth. Yeah, really the essence of servant leadership is you know, like a parent, I'd like somebody the, or the people that I work for to be more competent than me. And, and you, you have to let go in order to do that. You have to let them be you and then exceed you. And so if you keep with a hierarchical view of how organizations should be run and how things are done, you'll never get there, right? You have to bust that paradigm and say, hey, you're ready for this. You know, we were talking before before the call. That's, I mean, I already knew you know, back in the day when we would, uh, you know, respond to some of these hurricanes, right? I mean, I knew like you're trained from the from the Coast Guard, you know, so I knew you would knock any leadership opportunity out of the ballpark. And just believing and recognizing people's talents really is part of that development process as opposed to, well, they haven't gone to this training yet, or they haven't taken this step yet, or they're not old enough yet, or they haven't been in this position yet. I mean, separate those things from what this person could actually do as a person, strip all the titles out and just recognize the tremendous capacity in humans and then uh, nurture it. That's kind of what leaders do. So bringing people in front of a, a group to give a presentation or a group of leaders to give a presentation is really a small example of all the things we can do to push people to the front and have them let those talents shine. I love that. Recognize the tremendous capacity of humans and then nurture it. That's just a powerful way to put it. Ruin here talked a little bit about some stuff we were talking about as we were preparing to hit record. And one of my early opportunities with kind of volunteering after disasters, as we talked about in last week's episode with Michael Lavoie, one of my earliest opportunities was We'd had some tornadoes in the Louisiana, Alabama area, and then Hurricane Isaac hit. And for Hurricane Isaac, I had some experience as a team member going out and removing trees, tarping roofs, mucking out drywall, doing whatever we can do to make the homeowners have to suffer more from the disaster. We, we try to alleviate as much of that as we can as, as unpaid volunteers and just remove anything we can being as oftentimes unskilled truly in those fields, but to minimize the cost of repair to the homeowners. So we do quite a bit of great work with it. At Hurricane Isaac, I showed up all by myself to this command center where Ruin was staffing the supplies and Ruin kind of he nurtured me and led me over to become a team leader where I took a bunch of missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are just there to do humanitarian work and a friend of mine, Scott Newell. And he kind of ushered us over and I took this team down to Plaquemines Parish where we, we saw some devastating flooding from this hurricane because of this 
what was really a, a small grade storm, a category one storm, had stalled out over a portion of South Louisiana and just had caused massive flooding. And some Plaquemines Parish, Laplace, Louisiana, some horrible things. But I took this team and it was really my first opportunity as a leader. And I I remember thinking, I don't, I don't belong here as a leader. I don't know how to lead this team, but it giving me that opportunity just showed me that I could succeed. And then fast forward a few years, I moved to Alaska. I moved back to Louisiana with the Coast Guard. And two weeks after moving back, we have the Baton Rouge flooding of 2016 and just a devastating flood event. You know, I, I hadn't even unpacked my boxes yet. I lived only miles away from the line of what people had been impacted. And me and Ruin show up with the team and they're asking who wants to be in charge. And Ruin just puts his hand on my shoulders. Keith's got it. Keith's going to be the team leader. And I'm thinking, I'm like, Ruin's way more experienced with leading people and teams than I am. But I remember that he just nurtured me along and Ruin, I told him earlier, he's the consummate team player because put someone else in charge like that. He doesn't step over them. He doesn't take leadership. He always points people back to the team leader when appropriate. But while he's doing that, he would be in my ear. Hey, Keith, did you think about this? When do you think we should eat lunch? He's just always asking these prompting questions on the side where no one can see. They kind of nurture you as a leader to get even better at what you're doing. And I just really appreciate that example. So kind of going through that, as you look at those things, how you help people, what are some of the thoughts that go through your mind as you're looking at the people around you and how you can empower them to be even more than they think they can be themselves? Well, first, uh, I would say that there's people like you, Keith, that that make leaders look brilliant. (laughs) But what about the people that don't, right? What about the people who might not really have a lot of leadership, natural leadership capacity? They also need to be thrown to the wolves, right? Because- In people's minds, they can think about or they'll talk about what they would do, but when given the situation, they actually do something very different or freeze or don't know what to do. And it's much easier to train and coach a person who's had a leadership experience and not done very well or flat out failed than it is to coach a person who has never had an experience who's saying, I know, I know, I know, (laughs) you know, if you want to get someone's attention. Let them go fail or let them have a big challenge. And then they just seem to be a little more malleable to uh, and open to coaching and, and ideas. But if you've got a person as you, you know, were and, and as many others were that that has all this other experience and can just sort of run with things, then it's just fun. Then you're just you're just asking a question. I probably wasn't asking you, you know, what time we should eat lunch because uh, you, know, you needed help. I was, I was hungry. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was just it was just it was just easy. But to have the um, the desire as a leader, particularly as a servant leader, to say this person gets a shot, then we're going to do it. You know, we talked about and we know that my wife and I have the opportunity to go down and serve with some missionaries in Guatemala. And it's going to be on me to decide who becomes a, a leader of a district or of a zone, you know, larger opportunity. And one of the things that my trainers, because I'm being trained to do this, have talked about is to say, look for obedience. They haven't necessarily talked about look for great leaders, right? So that one function of they're obedient may qualify them enough to say, okay, well, at least they're going to be trying to do the right thing, right? Even though they'll stink at it. As opposed to, well, this person is a real good talker or this person, you know, everybody likes them because they're handsome or something, right? That we might do in organizations say, I bet this person can lead. What is that essence of a leadership 
you know, that, that a person needs to have in your, in your, in any organization in order for a person deciding on leadership roles to say, you know what, that's enough. I think I'm going to stick them out there. And that, that's where I would probably be thinking as a leader, what's enough to give them a chance. I like that thought process. And as you were talking to, I was, when you said maybe you were just hungry and that's why you're asking the question. One thing I remember too, and this is a good lesson for all of us leaders is that when you empower someone to take over, what I, what I witnessed from Ruin time and time again, and many different opportunities to learn from him, is that when he empowers someone, he nurtures them along, but he also looks for opportunities to bolster up the team. So he uses all of his experience to kind of go about and, and not necessarily help people, but to pay attention to who might be struggling or who might need a little a pat on the back. And then one time in the Baton Rouge flood event, I saw him dedicate significant amount of time to just nurturing to the homeowner. This, this poor woman had had massive amounts of flooding. I think we took the drywall out to six feet. It was just a, a significant amount. And she had a lot of things. She was a collector of things, we'll call her. Um, some might say excessively, but we'll just say that. And she had a lot of stuff in her house that was all ruined, all water damage. And she was just struggling to decide what to do with it, not to keep it. And I watched Ruin as I was leading this team, just help her grieve, help her understand, help her manage that loss. And it was powerful to me to see him take the time while so much was going on. And we had, you know, there were hundreds or if not thousands of people that needed help, but I watched him take the time. And that's what I love about servant leadership is that's what we do. We look at the individuals. What do they need in that moment? What will help them get over the hump? And kind of going back to Rulin alluded to this missionary service, but he's been called to be a mission president, which he's now going to sacrifice or dedicate three years of his life to leading these missionaries in Guatemala. You know, he's leaving a very successful career where he'll make no money other than whatever investments he's probably already done, but he'll walk away from this career to give back. And that's just one example of him and of servant leadership that I just love to highlight. And as you do so, as you look at these young men and women who are often between the ages of 18 and their low 20s, it's not just about helping them teach people about the savior. It's about helping them become successful at life and helping them use this experience of dedicating portion of the prime of their life to then build upon it later on. So how will you come into this role thinking about how you can take these young people and help prepare them for the rest of their lives? Yeah, I love that question. And I almost get emotional thinking about it. About 60% of the missionaries we'll work with are from Central America. So, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, and they come from, you know, various backgrounds. It's a poor area of the world. I mean, let's face it, the opportunities that they've had, the outlook on life might be very different from those that are coming from the United States. And and you're right, you know, we, our success is not in, you know, how many converts are made, but how many lives are changed. And those those lives start with our own. My wife and I are extremely excited to just go learn. Um, my wife has been tremendously humbled because she doesn't speak Spanish. I at least got to speak Spanish for two years on a mission and taught for a couple of years after I came back from Argentina. But my wife, you know, she started with Ola, you know, and, and she might forget that occasionally. And to just see somebody who's, you know, 
well, she looks very good. So I would say how old her she is, but you know, just say, okay, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to go learn and just kind of realize that's what every one of these missionaries is doing. They're humbling themselves. They're taking time out of their life. And we know that the good Lord will bless them, but how can we help them? And I don't know the answer to that question. I am so excited to learn the answer to that question. But I know that, you know, it'll come. It'll come through inspiration. It'll come through watching them. As you pointed out, you know, sometimes it'll come by not doing what I was scheduled to do that day, but just turning and ministering and, you know, caring for, talking to, listening to, you know, somebody whose arms are hanging down and find out what I can do or say or what opportunities might be provided for them to better themselves. Because not just in the church, but the world, you know, our hope, our future is in the hands of our youth. And if we don't collectively raise them up as high as we can, you know, we're cutting off our own our own hands, right? We're cutting off our own old age and and our own world. And and so it's incumbent upon all of us, whether we're called to be a mission president, you know, over a hundred missionaries or so, or uh, a neighbor across the street, to see who it is we're supposed to love and care for and help and be inspired. I mean, I think, uh, you know, whether you believe in God or not, you you have seen in your life, whoever you are, and felt and and had thoughts occur to you about what you should do. And it's just my belief that you should follow them. It'll richly reward you and those around you. And that's what we all do, no matter where we live. And so I'm just going to do what I should be doing in another country for a few years. That's just wonderful. I think we've seen a principle that I'd like to use for my challenge for this episode modeled here in Ruin today. And I also share an experience. I have some very close friends. They're like parents to me that are wrapping up their time as mission president and mission president's companion in the Berenquia, Colombia mission. And when they were first called, I got a Facebook message from this woman who kind of like Martha is an amazing math genius and just the one smart as a whip, just someone you'd never think was incapable of anything. And I got a message that she shared with just a select group that they'd gotten this call before it was announced. And she was really apprehensive and just asked for prayers and support from all the people close to her. I remember thinking, this is a woman who I would think could do anything. And she was reaching out for help. And Ruins talked a lot about this being open to learning. And so my challenge this week is think about the behavior you exhibit and how you show people that you're either open to learning or you're closed off from learning. Because I think if you spend time thinking about that, you'll, we can all recognize ways that we might limit our learning ability by sometimes pushing others away or making people think that we're not willing to learn. And the more we focus on being willing to learn, the more we'll be exposed to greater opportunities, even in the greatest leadership roles to become even better leaders. Well, I like to always give the listeners some final thoughts. So the floor is yours to share with all the listeners anything you think important to them. <laughs> well, I just want to first thank you. I think this has been uh, helpful for me to just sort of think through some of these principles. I think from the standpoint of change management, which is something that leaders struggle with because they think it's about making people do things, I would just offer that change management is about self-management. Do I know where this organization, even if it's my family or my community, my mission, my company, my government, you know, division, do I know where this organization is today? Am I willing to not 
go on and say, oh, I think it's actually uh, going to get better tomorrow or next week. I'll better be. No. Where is it today? And can I see clearly where it really ought to be? And then can I articulate that in a way that's so simple that people go, oh, yeah, no, I, I yeah, I agree. And then can I build plans, including, you know, specific assignments and recognition and celebration from milestones along the way to get from A to B? And if I can do that, then I'm as great a leader as, you know, Lee Iacocca or whatever, right? That's how the world changes. People with vision that own however ugly the, the current state is and can embrace however beautiful the, the future state is. And then to take that to another level and see that in people. Can I really see who this person is and who they can become? And can I see the one or two things I can ask of them or offer them lovingly and without force that can help them get from A to B. That's where we want to live. That's where the joy in this life comes and the growth and the blessings for everybody, you know, reside. And of course, my personal belief that God in heaven helps us do that if that's what our sincere desire is. And so that's my thought. Thanks so much, Ruin. It's been wonderful. I have been edified. I hope all you listening have been edified. And thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. Please share, like, review the podcast, and also visit the blog at www.theallmightbeedified.com and share your comments, share what you learned, share what you felt. We love to hear from you and share those thoughts. And anyone that you feel is worthy of having their voice amplified, please share them as well and have a wonderful day. 